Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Last week we had the ordination service, so we didn't continue in Ephesians. Uh, but tonight we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, picking up where we left off. And let me say this from the outset. Originally, I was to preach Ephesians 3, 1 to 6. I told Elias, let's go ahead and add verse 7. And then as I was preparing, I realized verse 7 is really a transitional statement that can go with either this week or next week. And so depending upon the time constraints, uh, we will determine if I'm going to go to verse 7 or let Alan cover that next week. So just to give you a heads up, it says 7, but we may, uh, may go a different direction with that. You may be wondering why this is up here. Um, we got this, actually we bought this to take to uh, Dirty Santa for one of my family, and nobody seemed to want it. So I brought it home, and uh, it's, it's called One Night Supervillains, or Ultimate Supervillains. It's a game that's, there's also a One Night Ultimate Werewolf. It's a game that's based actually on a much older game you may be familiar with, came out in the 80s, called Mafia. The idea of both games is there, you, you get a card and it tells you what you are. And you may be a super villain in this game. You may be a Mafia member in Mafia, or you may be a werewolf if you're playing the werewolf game. But only a few people get their minority. Everybody else gets something else. So in this version, you get to be a superhero if you're not a supervillain. Or you may be an innocent bystander in Mafia, uh, one of the townspeople. Or you may be one of the townspeople trying to catch the werewolf. Regardless, the point is, the hidden werewolf or supervillain or Mafia member will try, in the original game at least, to kill as many members as they can of the majority party. And the goal is for the minority party not to be discovered. Once they're discovered, they lose the game. And it can only be one member, at least in this version. Now, in the Mafia version, you would go over the course of multiple rounds and people would die and you'd have who done it at the end of each one, kind of like Clue. What is the point of this? The point is there was a mystery to solve. And somebody, the minority members, had the answer to the mystery. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that there is a mystery. There is something that was unknown, that was yet to be discovered, but to him it had been revealed. And he wants to reveal this mystery to the church at Ephesus and then ultimately to us. So thankfully for that we are not bound to the mystery because it's been revealed to us. So before we jump into the passage tonight, I was praying this afternoon, and I was praying in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to open us up by reading and praying through that. So if you would, please bow with me as we... Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. 
lofty and exalted with his, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Father, we see you, we recognize you as the Lord sitting on your throne. And Lord, your glory is so magnificent that we can't even comprehend it. We get but glimpses and pictures of it throughout the scriptures. We experience it at times in our lives. But Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. And Lord, as I hold my hand, worship you. I can only think, like Isaiah does in these following chapter and following verses, how unclean my hands, how sinful my heart, how deceitful my lips tend to be. Lord, as we study this word in Ephesians tonight, Lord, you have cleansed us as your people by the power of Christ and the application of his blood and his sacrifice to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. You have cleaned our hands. You have cleansed our mouths. And you have purified our hearts. So Lord, tonight as we study your word, may the words that come out of my mouth honor and glorify you as the truth. May your spirit work amongst your people to purify us, to draw us to you, and to help us understand who we are in you. Pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And really, we're just going to kind of walk through uh, this whole passage this evening. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, let's pause there. We haven't got very far. But let's pause there because... The first thing we see is that Paul says that he is a prisoner for a people. He's a prisoner for a people. Look back at chapter 2, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Paul had been discussing the nature of the church as Gentiles being called out to be part of the, the nation of Israel, part of God's chosen people. And so he's been talking about this, and then it, it seems like he's about to go into this prayer. And in fact, most commentators say this is Paul going into a prayer for them, but then he stops short. He starts to pray for them, and then he stops and diverts his attention, and verses 1 through 13 are basically one long parenthetical statement that Paul has about why he was going to pray. And in verse 14, he picks up the prayer, which focuses on the truths that uh, about which Paul is writing thus far. It's not just an intellectual truth, but it, he wants it to be a present reality in their experiences. And so he prays this beginning in verse 14, which we'll look at at a later time. But the reason for this digression has been debated by scholars. But I think it seems pretty, pretty reasonable to me to say that the reason for this is because he knew it would be beneficial to them to understand this mystery, to make it clear this mystery that he's been talking about. Now, remember, this, this letter is one of four letters that Paul was writing from prison. 
We have Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, all written from prison. And I think this digression is to show the Ephesians that even though he's in prison, his current situation should not cause them to doubt God, nor should it cause them to doubt Paul's apostleship. Rather, it should reinforce both of those things. And we'll look and see why as we break this down. First, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly where Paul is imprisoned at this, during this time. We know ultimately he ends up in Rome in a house prison under house arrest. Uh, he waited for two years in Caesarea before he went to Rome. So we don't really know if he's under the Jewish prison or if he's imprisoned by the Romans. And Paul says, listen, it doesn't really matter if I'm imprisoned by the Romans or by the Jews because the reality is I'm imprisoned. I'm a prisoner for Jesus. It doesn't really matter the outside expression of it. It doesn't really, really matter who he chooses to use. They have no true power over me because I am a prisoner for Jesus. So by his reasoning, he says, I am free to accomplish the work of the Lord wherever God places me. And so in thinking about this, if you become a prisoner to your circumstances, which we tend to do, we tend to look at our situation, tend to look at the, the circumstances in our lives and go, man, I'm going through some hard times right now. Maybe, maybe I'm under some kind of uh, imprisonment. You let those imprison you. Or maybe somebody's talking about you and what people think about you and your, your, uh, your uh, what's the word? I just went blank. <laughs> uh, that happens, okay. The, what people think about you imprisons you. And you're not able to experience a life full of joy in Christ because of that. But if you come to understand fully that you as a Christian are not a prisoner of those circumstances. You're not a prisoner of what people think about you. You're not a prisoner of any kind of trial or situation in which God places you. Because God is in control and he has a purpose for you in that place. So Paul could have looked at these circumstances around him and question the reality of God. He could have questioned the goodness of God, but instead he saw God had a purpose in this situation. He was using it for a purpose, and we'll see what that purpose is in just a second. But listen to what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. So just a brief aside there of Paul is writing this with the understanding that he is there for a reason. And so they should not be concerned about the circumstances. In fact, he says, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, while this was, as I said, to be an introduction to Paul's prayer, it occurred to Paul maybe why he, he should explain why he was so earnestly praying for the Ephesian believers. Uh, the, the Ephesians are explicitly related to that situation in which Paul is in prison. Uh, this is the heart of the reason why Paul was in prison, because he was preaching to the Jews, and they were okay with that, until he got to the point to say, I am also called to go to the Gentiles. And then they had a problem. And then he would go from place to place, preaching the gospel of Jesus 
to the Gentiles, and that's when he ended up in prison. So the, the original readers of this letter were Christians that Paul had gone and ministered to, and many of them had come to Christ under his ministry. And so it is directly because of his ministry to the Gentiles that he is in prison. And I think it's interesting to think about how radically, before we go any further, how radically God transformed Paul. Because you remember who Paul says he was? He was a Pharisee. He was a zealous persecutor of those who followed Jesus. He was present and probably encouraged the stoning of Stephen. And then the scripture says he went from house to house, imprisoning those who were followers of Jesus. He was a proud and zealous Jew. He thought he was one of God's chosen people, right? He, he thought he was one of the best God chose, he thought God chose Israel, God chose the Jews because we're something special. We're God's special chosen people. But not only that, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So of all the chosen people, I'm one of the best. And so he was zealous and he, because of that, had a hatred. Had a hatred for those outside of Israel, outside of the Jews. Those Gentiles, as many of the Pharisees did, they hated the people who were outside of the covenant of Israel. And yet, God's mighty power transformed Paul into one who not only uh, willingly submitted to God's will, but to the extent that he was himself imprisoned. The one who was going and imprisoning people is now himself imprisoned for the same thing that he was imprisoning those other people for. And for the sake of those for whom he once despised, he is now in prison. Paul understood his ministry was to be to those outside of Israel. And he makes that clear as we get into the next verse. He says, if indeed, this is verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So Paul says, I am a steward. I'm a manager of the mystery that has been entrusted to me for you Gentiles. Now, the phrasing there is, is interesting because if you read it this way, it says, if indeed, it kind of sounds like it's questioning. But it's not really questioning. It's, Paul's not questioning if they've heard this. He was with them for three years. He ministered among them for three years. So the NIV actually translates this, I think, to get the meaning across better. He says, surely you have heard, surely you have heard of how I was entrusted with this mystery. Paul had ministered there for three years. He'd now been away for approximately seven years. So he's saying, those of you who were there, you know, because I told you, and surely the rest of you have heard that I was entrusted to be the manager, to be the steward of this mystery. I kind of alluded this a second ago, but Acts 22 and chapter 23, uh, Paul goes to leaders of, or he goes to the church at, at Jerusalem, and he goes there to say, hey, I've, I think God has called me, or to say, well, God has called me, to be a minister to the Gentiles. 
And the church there gives their stamp of approval, says, yes, we agree, God has chosen you. And so Paul leaves, and he had received instruction to go to the synagogue, and he was supposed to go and make purification there. So he went to the synagogue, and somebody there recognized him, says, this guy's been preaching this Jesus to people outside of Israel. And so what happens? He gets mobbed. A mob comes after him. They have to call in the Romans to come in and extract Paul. Paul's taken away, and then he's brought back. He says, hey, I I want to make a defense to the people in the synagogue. And so he begins to speak to them the gospel. And they were listening attentively. And then Paul says, and I have been called to be a missionary, to be a minister to the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden, everybody's in an uproar again. So much so... They take him back to the Roman barracks. And he spends the night there. He goes out the next day to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. And they ask him what's going on. And as they're having this discussion, they began, it says, they began to have a violent dispute. And Paul was then taken out from there. And in Acts 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Have courage, for you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. B.H. Carroll wrote this, It is as much the province of the Lord Jesus Christ to select the field of labor as it is to call a man to preach. And the preacher who disregards the divine jurisdiction over the place where he is to preach, is sure to get in trouble and bring shame and failure to himself. So Paul says, I was made a manager, a steward of this mystery, and it's been entrusted to me. I I am the manager of it. The idea here is the manager, the administrator of a household. I've been charged with administering the gospel. I have a responsibility to manage it well and to share it well. And so for Paul, his unique ministry, he says, this is to you, the Gentiles, the people outside of the covenant people of Israel. I am to take this message to you. He was the the initiator of the implementation of God's worldwide plan to reach the nations. And you know, while none of us have been called to be the apostle to the nations, Paul was that, and I believe he is the only one, The gospel has been entrusted to us as believers. We are to be stewards of it. It has been entrusted to us. We've received spiritual gifts that we're going to talk about here in a few weeks that comes to us when we become a believer. We have natural talents. We have personalities. We have gifts, uh, skills, and unique opportunities to take the gospel to people that are, I mean, people that you can reach are going to be different than the people I can reach. Because of our differences, we're, we're different, but we're also called to the same mission. And so because of that, we're united together. So just as Paul was entrusted to be a manager of the mystery, so also are we entrusted with it. But notice what Paul begins to delineate here in verse 3. He says, this is where we really get introduced to this mystery. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Now, let's talk about this a little bit because Paul introduces this word in this verse, this mystery, this mysterion, 
And it's a word that I think we like to, uh, to make confusing. Because what Paul is not claiming here is that this gospel is puzzling. It's not that it's something that we have to work hard to understand. Now, don't get me wrong. There are complexities to the gospel. But it's also so simple that a child could understand it and respond to it in faith. And so while it is a mystery, it is not inherently puzzling to the point that we can't understand it. W.A. Criswell said, A mystery refers to a truth long hidden, but eventually revealed to man by God at the appointed time. And he says this usually refers to some aspect of salvation. And so Paul here, he introduces this mystery, something that has yet to be revealed. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But now it had been revealed to Paul by God's revelation. Revelation is the, simply the act of making something known. And while it can take many forms, it usually re refers to uh, Scripture. And in this case, case, Paul is making the claim that God has revealed something to him about the gospel. And he will make plain this mystery shortly, but he seems to be, as, as we're reading through these, he seems to be keeping this mystery kind of a secret. So I don't want to ruin the surprise, although you probably already know it. But he, he waits, so I'm going to wait before we reveal this. So first Paul said, he, I want you to understand the means of this revelation, the means of this revelation. Because first, he says, this revelation was not something that I discovered. In, uh, in 1958, there was a, a bulldoze, bulldozer operator who uh, was in Northern California, and he discovered a set of human-like footprints, but they were 16 inches long. And thus, the legend of Bigfoot was born. Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, as you probably know, is supposed to be this ape-like creature uh, that inhabits the forests of North Africa. And today there are literally hundreds of people who spend their days squatching. They're looking, hunting for Sasquatch. Why? Because every one of these researchers wants to have the fame, the acknowledgement, the glory of being the one to say, listen, I have found indisputable evidence that Bigfoot exists. Well, Paul here is saying, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not trying. I didn't seek this. I wasn't trying to make a name for myself. I was called by God, and he revealed this to me. I didn't go seeking it to make a name for myself. I'm not trying to reveal this mystery to make myself look good. I'm doing it because God revealed it to me, and he gave it to me as a manager to give it to you. Nor did Paul get this understanding secondhand. He didn't go to the apostle Peter and say, hey, I, I don't understand this. Uh, can, you, can you teach me? And then he'd take it to everybody else. And so he's not like trying to steal Peter's glory by going and being the one to write about it. No, he says he got this directly from God. It was revealed to him, this mystery. In fact, think about this. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus answered that when the, uh, the, uh, the disciples asked him, why do you teach in parables? He said this, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but has not been given to them. 
For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. And so Jesus himself says, listen, the mysteries of God, they can't be discovered by man. They can't come from man. They can only come from God. The revelation was directly to Paul from the Lord Jesus. But Paul's meaning of mystery is not like this idea of these mystery religions. Right? The idea behind these mystery religions is you get this secret to this mystery. That everybody wants to know. But you keep it a secret. And you entrust it only to a few And you pass it along through the ages so that it doesn't disappear, but it always retains this this esoteric knowledge that you refuse to divulge the secrets. And it's, you know, that's kind of a trademark of a cult. If you can't talk about it, it's probably, at least when it comes to religion, it's probably a cult. But instead, Paul says in verse 4, he is going to divulge, he's going to disclose that which he knows to others. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul has the ability and the responsibility to disclose the revelation of the mystery. Rather than remaining hidden, the mystery is to be revealed. And that which was once not understood is now to be understood because revelation is offered by God to make himself known, to make his plans known, to make his person known, and to make his purposes known. And so God revealed this mystery to Paul for the church so that his plan and his purpose would be made known. And we'll, we'll get to that mystery in just a minute. I know you're, you're waiting anxiously. But Paul explains his own calling here in verse uh, number four, saying that he wants to make sure they understand his insight. He doesn't want them to be misunderstood. There's a story that says a, a little girl crawled up into her grandfather's lap and she looked up into his eyes and she said, Grandpa, can you talk to me like a frog? And he looked at her and he said, Sure. Ribbit, ribbit. The girl jumped up out of his lap, ran into the kitchen, said, Mommy, 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 we can finally go to Disney World. Grandpa finally croaked. It took some of you a second to get it. There was a misunderstanding there. Paul says, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm trying to tell you. In fact, one commentator compared him to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel, if you remember, uh, his job, he had been taken captive by the Assyrians, and he was living under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule, involuntarily. But he was employed by Nebuchadnezzar, and he was called upon because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he didn't He wanted to know what it meant. But he kind of had this little twist, right? Not only did his wise men have to interpret the dream, they had to know what the dream was in the first place. He wasn't telling them. Well, Daniel came and he said, well, this was your dream. And then he explains it to him. And then later, 
there's this writing on the wall of four words that on their own, they don't make any sense. And all the wise men, they didn't understand what it, was, what it meant. And so Daniel was called again, and he interpreted these four words and said, this is what it meant. And his interpretation came that night, came true that night. Throughout the book of Daniel, he receives visions, he interprets dreams, and he reveals to the people that it affects, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar, the people at the party, he reveals what God is telling them through it. Well, this is kind of what Paul's doing here. He is the one to reveal to the church at Ephesus. He's the one to reveal to all the Gentiles this truth that we're going to read about in just a second. But I want to pause a moment here because here's another reality. Now, let me say this up front. I'm a Baptist. I'm a person of the book. I believe in the power of the scriptures. But I'm also a person of the Spirit. And I recognize that we can read these words, and without the power of the Spirit, we cannot understand what it's meaning. And in fact, there's been tons of people who will pour over the scriptures, and they will not understand what it means. Just like Jesus said, I teach in parables so they won't understand. And it requires one with spiritual insight to teach. And that's the job of the church. We're the ones who've been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And so when we read, we go, it makes perfect sense. This is what God is saying. But when somebody who doesn't have the Spirit reads it, this is gobbledygook. And they come across with some really weird ideas sometimes. People are led way astray because of these weird interpretations. So the, the purpose of the church, one of the, one of the roles of the church, is that as spiritual people, we make known the spiritual truth that comes out of the word of God. And that's one of the things that we do as church members. It's the duty of the church to train up the church members and how to do that properly. And it's the duty of the church members to go out and to share that with the world. And so we want to make sure that God is not misunderstood. And unfortunately, in our world today, there's many misunderstandings about God. We should make sure that people understand the mysteries of God as they've been revealed to us by His Spirit and as by the apostles and by the prophets of God. Look at the next verse, what Paul says. Verse number 5 which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So there, there's a couple of things there. First, we see this time of disclosure. Paul tells the Ephesians, he still hasn't told them the content of the mystery yet. He's still talking about the nature of the mystery because he wants them to fully understand how this come about how it's related to them, the nature of this mystery, before he tells them what it is. But he wants them to understand this is a new mystery. This, this revelation that I'm going to give you, Moses didn't have this. The Old Testament prophets didn't have this. This is something that is new because it is revealed to us in Christ through those whom he appointed, the holy prophets and his holy apostles. We'll read in Ephesians 4 about the gifts that Christ gives the church. 
Paul says two of those here. He says the prophets and the apostles. Now, Dr. Spivey has the responsibility to preach that uh, here in a few weeks, so I'm not going to steal his thunder now. But here's the point that Paul's making. In the Old Testament, there was partial revelation. There was things that were, God was revealing so that they could understand. But the fullness of it doesn't come until Jesus. And when Jesus reveals this, he reveals it to his apostles. And they have the responsibility to go and to make it known to everyone else. So this wasn't fulfilled until the time of Christ. It wasn't revealed until the dispensation of the Spirit. So what is this? What is this that we're, this revelation that we've been talking about? Well, finally in verse 6, I know you've been waiting eagerly. Verse 6, Paul reveals what he's talking about. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul begins now to explain. He makes it, he reveals it fully. He explains the enigma. The mystery that he's been talking about is this mystery of the nature of the church. Paul had first referred to the gospel mystery back in verse 1, in, uh, or chapter 1 and verse 9, where he says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purported in Christ. So the key idea here is the mystery centers on God's eternal plan that takes place in Jesus. And he specifies this particular application of it here in chapter 3. So up to this point, we talked about this briefly, briefly, goodness, I can't talk now. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he outlined these unprecedented blessings that the, the Ephesians and the Gentiles are receiving as God pours them out. The Old Testament writers were ignorant of the sort of blessing that, they would, that the Gentiles would receive because they understood it this way. They understood that it would all come through Israel, which we recognize it does through the person of Jesus. But in Genesis 12, 23, or sorry, 12, 2 and 3, uh, God promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And he said, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, up to this point in the Old Testament, it's all about Israel. And Jesus, when he came, he said his duty was to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. So how does this whole thing with the Gentiles work out? I like what Warren Wiersbe uh, wrote about this. He said, God offered them, that is Israel, the kingdom through the ministry of John the Baptist, whom the Jews permitted to be slain, through Christ's ministry, whom the Jews slayed or permitted to be slain, and through the apostles and Stephen, whom the Jews themselves killed. So three times the offer was given to Israel. And three times the nation not only rejected them, but killed the messengers. 
So Paul wrote in Galatians 3.14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. And he says in 2.13 of Ephesians, he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. So his special task was to share the truth of the nature of the church. He says it's one body reconciled to one another in Jesus. It's one church, one promised people, and he gives three applications of it here. The first is he says that they are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Now, when my grandmother passed away back in January, um, she left all of her possessions to my father and his two sisters. The three of them were all co-heirs. They were equal heirs in the inheritance that she left. They did nothing to gain that inheritance. Now, don't get me wrong. They did some work around the farm. They, they took care of things. But the nature, the, the way that it came to them was not by what they did. They didn't have to purchase it. They didn't have to go buy all the stuff. It belonged to my grandmother. And when... She passed away. They received it because of their relationship to her, because they were part of the family. Similarly, the Gentiles are able to be co-heirs with Israel in receiving the inheritance of God. Both the Jew and the Gentile can be full members in the family of God. Even, even in the Old Testament, you could become, if you were a Gentile, you could become a Jew proselyte but you were like a second-class Jew. You weren't really a full Jew. You weren't born into it. You weren't raised up in it. You weren't of the right nationality. But here Jesus says it doesn't matter. Paul says it doesn't matter. Jesus didn't just die for the Jews. He died for the world. All humanity, every human being can be a part of the family of God regardless of their nationality, regardless of their color, regardless of their race. It doesn't matter. Your background. You can be part of the family of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because he died to pay the penalty for your sins. You can be part of the family of God if you have faith in Jesus and you trust him as Lord. Now the emphasis here is on this unearned gift of grace. They didn't do anything to deserve it. And we already read in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from your works. It's God's gift so that no one can boast. The family of God is united in a common faith. It's a common understanding that God is our Father, and that he redeemed us, purchased us by the blood of his Son. And if you believe that, then you have salvation. And if you don't believe that, I invite you here in just a little bit, we're going to have a time of response to this message. And if you want to respond to that, um, we'll have instructions on that in just a moment. But he says also, that was the first, they were fellow heirs. He secondly, he says they're fellow members of the body. They're fellow members of the body. So while family members can be close, it's not quite as intimate as being part of your own body. There's a deep and intimate relationship that Paul is speaking about here. The members in the church are so, supposed to be so close that they can help each other out. 
that they can coordinate together so that they can complete one another in Christ and be the full body of Christ. And later in the next chapter, again, Paul will call the church the body of Christ. But in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes much more in depth about it. And we don't have time to cover it all today. But here's the point. Paul wrote that God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And he says this, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And so the emphasis here is on the relationship that we as the church and individual members of it have with one another. We are part of the body of Christ. And the way we interact with one another, well, there's actually, there's a hundred or so different uh, times that uh, the, the phrase one another is used in the New Testament. And of those 100, about 60 of them are specific commands on how church members are to interact with one another. And so we are members, fellow members with the Gentiles, well, we are Gentiles probably. I don't, I don't know anybody here that comes from a Jewish background. But we're united together. And he says, finally, that we are fellow partakers of the promise. Fellow partakers of the promise. The idea here is that of partnership. A sharer. I think partners fits best in the context. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we saw that, uh, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So the Gentiles become partners with the Israelites, the Jewish believers, in the ministry, the mission that God had instituted. And so the church is to work in partnership with one another to accomplish the good works that God prepared for us to do. We are partakers of the promise. And so what is the promise? It's the promise of the gospel. We are to work together to share what Paul will say in Ephesians 4, the one hope that we have in Christ Jesus. This one hope that unites us as believers. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. We call this the Great Commission, right? It details the mission of what the church is about. It's about making disciples of Jesus. It's about sharing the message. It's about the fulfillment of the, the promise that God made to Abraham to bless the nations, that's the work of the church. That's what we should be about. Sharing in the fulfillment of the promise. Members of the church partner together to work together as the body of Christ to expand the family of God. Well, I'm going to say, Alan, you can cover verse 7 next week, okay? God has revealed the mystery of the church. It is the family of God. It is the body of Christ that is engaged as partners in the gospel work. Brothers and sisters, we've been entrusted with the promise of the gospel. We've been entrusted 
as stewards of this mystery of the nature of the church, that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ because of the will of the Father. And when you accept that in faith, it's applied by his Holy Spirit so that we are joined together, united together in a common bond of love, of salvation, and of mission. So my question to you, my challenge to you, is how are you relating and caring for one another? How are you advancing the gospel? One last thing, and this just came to my mind. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter and the rest of the apostles go out, having been filled with the Spirit, and what are they doing? They're preaching the gospel, but how are they doing it? In other tongues, right? It wasn't just to Israel. It was to all the nations because they were speaking these other tongues for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great calling that you've given us. Lord, to be called together as your body to be constituted together, to be bound together by your blood and our common confession. Lord, as we respond to you, if there's anyone here who has not accepted the message of salvation, this mystery that's been revealed, pray that their hearts would be stirred. And for those that are here that have already placed their faith and trust in you, Stir our hearts to love for one another, acceptance of one another, and unity in pursuing the mission and the vision of a global faith where we reach every tribe, every tongue, every nation, so that Revelation chapter 5, 6 vision would come to pass. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals, reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.